0: Hey there, Full Disc listeners. We've got something special for you today. In the current global pandemic world we're living in, we at Full Disc started feeling the huge void being left by the extreme lack of aviating going on. Our good friends at Mudspike Aviation felt the same. We both agreed that something needed to be done. Since we couldn't get out and watch our friends fly, we figured what better way to keep in touch than inviting them into our virtual flight line and having a simple conversation about all things aviation. For seven straight hours, we had live conversations with military pilots, airshow pilots, warbird owners and operators, social media personalities, and photographers. The audio was recorded live, and while there were definitely some technical issues that popped up, we feel that the quality of the conversation greatly outweighs the quality of the audio. Without further ado, Full Disc Aviation and Mudspike Aviation present the following for your listening pleasure.
1: Full Disk Aviation and Mud Spike Aviation presents an aviation conversation.
2: All right, everybody listening. Welcome back to another segment of Aviation Mud Spike Aviation Virtual Air Show. I'm Tyler Zone Five Photo on Instagram, joined by Uh,
1: Sean Mitchell at Ron Richel on Instagram.
2: And our guest, Evan Nopro Levesque, uh Rhino Driver on Instagram. Evan, how you doing? Hey, good. Thanks for having me, Tyler. Thank you for joining us. Um, so just starting off, um, if you could tell us about your background, uh, types of aircraft you fly, and how you got into flying.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, so I currently am flying the, uh, the F-18, E, F, and G um, in the Navy. Um, prior to that, went through the standard flight school uh, course in the Navy, consisting of the T-6B, Texan II. Um, Unlike the previous T-6 that you guys were uh, talking about on this, it's the turboprop (laughs) uh, Pilatus PC-9 uh, variant. After the uh, T-6 went to the T-45C, that's a uh, military trainer based off of the British Hawk. Uh, They basically took a Hawk and uh, bolted a tailhook on it and did some mods so that it could land on the carrier uh, and then uh, ended up in the F-18. Outside of military aviation, kind of took your standard path of... Cessna 152, 172, Piper Cherokees to my private pilot's license, and then uh, I just kind of fly whatever I can now. Um, I own the Vans RV8, so I fly that quite a bit, and then uh, try and try and dabble in other people's airplanes as much as I can. <laughs> awesome. Well,
2: <clears throat> this is probably a, a tough question, but if you're going to go out you know, on, a, on a perfect day and go fly, what airplane would you like to take with you?
3: Oh, man, that's a tough one. So, you know, it, I hate to give you this answer, but it depends. Um, yeah. Because I've found, you know, different airplanes have different missions. And um, uh, I'm not going to lie, the Rhino is a fantastic airplane um, insofar as there's very few limitations on what you can do with it. Um, so there, there are definitely limitations on the airplane, but the envelope is so big. You know, I mean, you can fly the airplane slower than a, one, a Cessna 172 and all the way up to Mach 2. So you're never yeah. going to really hit an airspeed limitation in your flight. Um, so the F-18 is great for just a carefree flying experience. Um, but then there's some, something to be said for jumping in a Piper Super Cub and fly around at 50 feet with the doors open. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, so I don't know. It kind of changes, but I'm an airplane nut. So uh, I think the best answer is the one I'm flying now is my current airplane. is is my favorite airplane. Awesome. That's a good answer.
2: Um, when it comes to, you know, obviously naval aviation, the main focus is boat flying and uh, landing aboard the ship, uh, trapping. Do you have any memorable traps that stand out to you?
3: Um, well, yeah. So, um, the first one, obviously. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because um, there's, no, there's absolutely nothing that you can do that prepares you for that first arrested landing. Um, and the, the workup to it is, is pretty in-depth. So you'll do what we call FCLPs, which are field carrier landing practice. Um, and you do that in two stages in, in jet training. You'll do it about halfway through. They call that intermediate mid-stage bounce. Um, and at that point, you're just you're landing on a normal runway. It's got an aircraft carrier landing area painted on it. Uh, and they've got the the same lens that the the ship does, and you just practice flying the carrier pattern, which is lower than most civilian aircraft fly. So we fly the traffic pattern at 600 feet, um, and it's a it's a powered approach turn uh, all the way from your downwind leg to your base leg to your final leg is all one constant uh, angle of bank descending turn from 600 feet. So you practice that in mid stage bounce. Um, but you're still not any good. And then uh, you'll go to advance hmm. and you'll do the same thing uh, and you'll, and you'll practice it. But by this time you've had more time in the airplane. Um, you've had more practice. And you're actually starting to get pretty, pretty safe. And then you'll go uh, from mid stage bounce out to the boat. The, the LSOs say, Hey, you're, you're uh, qualified and, and all your bouncing by the way is solo. So there's no instructor in your back seat. There's just a landing signal officer in the back. Uh, or uh, on the ground and you're getting graded getting advice um, But the first time that you launch out to the ship there's an instructor is your flight lead and three students um, and you fly off the coast we did it in Jacksonville and uh, You're just sitting here flying for them trying to do what you what you've been doing as far as formation admin and the Instructor says hey go ahead and look down you look down and there's the boat and you've seen it in in videos. So it's, it's kind of funny. The majority of people, I think, uh, in my flight school class had never seen an aircraft carrier in person until they landed on it. Wow. Wow. Um, and so you look down and you say, yep, that's an aircraft carrier. And then, <laughs> uh, and then, then they, they lead you into the break, you break. And, and the first one, you have to have your tail hook up, um, as, as kind of a risk management thing of, um, cause people tend to do stupid things once they put the hook down cause they're trying to land. Um, so you leave the hook on up for your first one so that there's no possible chance of stopping, uh, which kind of takes a little of the pressure off. And then you just fly the pattern the same way that you did at the field. And, uh, you roll out behind the boat for the first time and kind of have that, oh my God moment. Um, (laughs) and, um, and you go to lizard brain and just kind of do what you've been taught and it, it works out. And obviously you don't stop, but, um, I remember the wheels hitting. Go to full power, just like I'd been taught. And before the engine was fully spooled up, the end of the flight deck went under the nose and I was flying again. And so the transition from flying, landing, flying was faster than anything else I'd ever experienced up to that point. Um, and so then you're climbing away, kind of recovering from that experience. Um, and the airbot, or the LSOs, I guess, come over the radio and say, 142, hook down. And you reach over and you slap the hook handle down. And it's a pretty substantial handle. I mean, the, the hook handle is bigger than a landing gear handle in a Navy jet. Mm-hmm. And uh, you slap the hook handle down. And it, it comes down. And then, uh, and then you just do exactly the same thing you just did. Except there's a, effectively a car accident at the end of it. And, uh, and, you, uh, and you stop. <laughs> <laughs> so that was probably the most memorable one. Um, was the first one. Just because you, you had no idea what to expect. Um, and the entire experience is just brand new. Um, yeah. And then the only other one I had was a, um, I had an INS, the inertial nav system on the F-18. Uh, when the catapult fired, the box, I guess, came unseated. And so we lost our inertial nav. Um, and so you lose some of the instrumentation in the airplane. Oh. Uh, so Specifically the velocity vector, which tells us where we go. Uh, like where the airplane's going to go in the heads-up display, mm-hmm. uh, went away. And uh, it was night, of course, a so night pitching deck, bad <laughs> weather. Um, and I was the tanker, so I was the last guy aboard. Um, and so that one was pretty memorable in a different way. But, uh, but yeah, probably those two were the most memorable.
2: Yeah. Um, is that something you guys train to as far as
1: you know, losing the velocity vector or losing instrumentation?
3: You do so. You'll you'll train to it when you're doing your mid stage bounce. You'll you'll turn on INS uh, for a couple of passes or, or turn the heads up display off completely. Um, and to be clear, you're training the way you land on the ship. Your scan doesn't actually involve the heads up display. Um, it's the scan is meatball. So the the glide slope reference on the ship, line up, which is just the the center line stripe on the on the landing area, mm-hmm. and then angle of attack, which is a little stoplight arrangement that's on the left side of the HUD. Um, so the textbook method of landing on the ship actually doesn't involve the heads-up display. Um, mm-hmm. Now, of course, over a thousand hours of flying the F-18, which has a very gucci heads-up display, you start to use that as sort of a crutch. Um, and so when you lose something in the heads-up display, it sort of forces you to go back to the basics. But I hesitate to call it an emergency because you're just going back to the way people have been landing on ships since, you know 1950. Um, mm-hmm. It's just it's a different scan pattern than we're used to, but we do practice it, and uh, and then when it happens, you just kind of make it make it work. But what we don't do is we don't practice it actually at the ship. Yeah, Um, we kind of consider that you know that's like practicing bleeding. You don't want to do that. So (laughs) um, so you practice it ashore, and then if it happens real world, uh, obviously people kind of take more of an interest in you at that point. So you'll you'll tell the ship, hey, here's what I'm working in my cockpit, uh, and then the LSOs will come out, talk to you, you'll formulate a game plan, and then they'll keep, a, keep an eye on you since they know that you're working some snakes in the cockpit. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Alright, Evan, this is Sean. Uh, did you, so we're, talk- we're already talking about the, a fairly dangerous situation that you've been in there, um, but have you ever been in any particular uh, particularly dangerous situations that you're able to share uh, more related to anything with, um, with combat or anything like that? Have you, do you have any interesting stories related to that?
3: You know, so so I did. Uh, all my deployments were out to the uh, the South China Sea, so I actually didn't, didn't fly the airplane in combat at all. Um, all of my kind of close calls, um, I didn't really have any. The 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 carrier landing that I just talked about, where we lost the INS, that just was sort of a it gets your attention moment. Um, but I don't really think that I've had many. I guess emergencies per se in the airplane that uh that were were super you know dangerous or life-threatening or anything like that i've gotten gotten pretty lucky with that
1: yeah i would say so um uh, (laughs) no no complaints there i'm sure um no absolutely not not. Um, in any dangerous situations so
3: no i've Um, no no i have um been in the air while other people uh had emergencies so i I guess i've had the good fortune to always be in the other airplane um (laughs) but uh I tanked a guy whose landing gear wouldn't come down at night, um, and fuel became sort of critical, so we had to, we had to join on him as the tanker uh, and then tank him with his landing gear extended, which is just sort of a non-standard um, procedure. So definitely have seen emergencies in progress and been involved in them, but luckily not with my aircraft.
1: Well, we'll call that a good thing, I guess, in the long run, right? Yeah, um, for sure. Is there, so we talked about kind of what your favorite plane is, uh, or you said you had basically whatever one you're flying is pretty much your favorite plane, but are there any planes that you particularly wish you would have the opportunity to fly or even could have flown if, if they were still flying?
3: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think everyone's got that list, right? So, um, I guess we'll start with the ones that I, I won't actually be able to fly. Um, so, when I grew up, I wanted to be an A6 pilot. The uh, the intruder, for some reason, just kind of the, the low-level two-seat Strike mission uh, is what really appealed to me, um, and I was lucky enough that when I joined the Navy, I ended up in the community that I wanted to. So the the F eighteen F is a medium attack two seat jet, and we do low level ingress all the time. So I got to got to do the mission, uh, but I would have loved to have flown the A six. Um, as far as far as other airplanes, I think the uh, the P forty is probably pretty high on my list. The Warhawk. Um, and then, of course, to get to any of the warbirds, such as the, the P-40 or uh, like an SBD Dauntless, um, right. an Avenger, things like those. Uh, the gauntlet you kind of have to run is the PT-17 Stearman and then the, either the AT-6 or the SNJ, the Texan. Um, so those are the two airplanes that you have to master. So I think that my focus right now is trying to master those two airplanes because um, that's a totally different skill than, uh, than what I've been exposed to thus far in my flying career.
1: It certainly sounds like you uh, you're on you're you're working towards something like that. So that'll would be interesting to to see where that goes. Um, but uh, all right. Uh, what about the question for you? For how, what's the fastest you've been, and how high have you flown?
3: Uh, so the fastest I've flown was Mach one point four six. Um, and incidentally, that was on my first solo in the F eighteen.
1: <laughs> um, because <laughs> they,
3: uh, you know it's the first supersonic airplane you've flown and kind of the yeah. the running joke in the squadron at least so I, I did my f18 training in virginia beach where we have the overwater ranges that you can go supersonic mm-hmm. in and uh everybody on their first solo went up and broke the number and see how fast they could get the thing so um so yeah 1.46 was the fastest i ever got the super hornet and then uh as far as altitude headed up in the uh in the high 40s doing a uh a post maintenance check flight for cabin pressurization, just making sure that the the cabin pressure schedule matched what uh, what the book said. And so we had it all the way up to uh, the high forties, which uh, pretty high for that airplane. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Yeah.
1: Or right, I see we have a user question there from uh, Sam uh, at uh, at Sackdown AV Photo. How is the physical transition back and forth from flying an RV and an F-18? Any tendencies you tend to keep from one another?
3: That's a good one. I actually get that a lot on Instagram when I post uh, RV questions. Guys go, hey, what's it like going back and forth? And uh, I think the the nice thing between the two is that they're such different airplanes um, that a lot of the habit patterns are are pretty well divorced just by virtue of they're so different that you don't really have the chance to mix them up. Um, this kind of surprises people. I consider the F-18 to be the easier of the two to fly. Um, <laughs> surprisingly. And so you can get away with a lot of things in the F-18 that you probably wouldn't want to do in the RV-8. Um, just because it's got so much power, it's got fly-by-wire, um, it's a fairly heavy airplane, so it's less affected by winds and things like that. um, and like i said previously that there's no limitations on the uh on the F18 that you can really get to whereas in the RV um you know you've got g limits you've got airspeed limits you've got um engine limitations that you have to adhere to so i'm actually from a pure flying standpoint not mission related obviously uh i'm busier in the RV than i am in the F18 uh which is what makes it enjoyable um so i think the the key is is you have to make sure that your F-18 flying does not make you feel invincible for your R V eight flying because the R V eight is the one that's gonna bite you if you uh if you kind of blow off the limits. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting.
2: Uh, awesome. Evan, one thing if you could for those of us who are interested in naval aviation, could you walk us through what it's like, the the experience of being
3: shot off the end of the boat? Yeah, so uh I've actually got a video on Instagram that's a uh it's a point of view cat shot. Um, that's, that's a good one to watch that so kind of gives you the visual of it. Um, but as far as the uh, the initial experience, so you're taxiing up to the, to the catapult, and uh, the wings are folded, you've gone through all your checks. Um, and a, a difference on the boat is that you, you, don't ta- you don't move on the ship unless you're under the control of a yellow shirt. Um, so the airplane's in positive control all the time. So when you're sitting in chalks, the plane captain is giving you hand signals and telling you what to do before you do anything with the airplane because you're in such close proximity to everything on the carrier. I mean, the airplanes could be parked uh, two to three feet away from each other. Um, and that's, that's not an exaggeration. Like They're close enough where if you moved a control surface, you could actually impact another airplane. Um, mm-hmm. And so the plane captain's job is to look around and verify that you're not going to hit any person or object with a control surface or anything like that. So you don't move anything on the airplane without the plane captain telling you to. And then once the plane captain releases you, you're given to a yellow shirt who taxis you to the, to the catapult. Um, and again, you don't turn or do anything without them come up on the power, nothing without a yellow shirt telling you to do it. Uh, so they direct you to the catapult. You'll unfold the wings. Uh, the takeoff checklist is usually run... During the taxi at some point uh, in the two-seat airplane, it's a challenge response type thing. So the Wizzo will actually call out the checklist items, pilot verifies that they're done, uh, and then calls the item complete. Uh, and then the last thing we do is we spread the wings as we taxi over the, uh, the jet blast deflector. Again, that's on command from a yellow shirt, so you don't hit anything um, with the wings as they come down. And then uh, you, you taxi into the shuttle, and that's the first challenge, is, is you the yellow shirt on the deck is actually giving you these, these left and right commands with the nose wheel. Because you've got to get the launch bar lined up uh, into the shuttle, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so the yellow shirt is giving you these uh, steering commands to get the the nose wheel lined up so that the launch bar uh, will will launch it, in, drop into the shuttle, and uh, you'll put the launch bar down, and then you taxi right up, right up to the uh, to the catapult, and then a, a gigantic. It's a buffer, but they, it's it's basically a gigantic spring, uh, and it. it engages a holdback fitting on the airplane and it actually stops the airplane from moving forward uh without the brakes set and so then uh they get the the holdback adjusted and and set correctly and then uh when the ship's ready to launch you they give you a final turn up signal or a final power up signal and you run up uh to about 75 percent and taxi the last couple inches over the shuttle uh Mm. and and you can feel a thud as the launch bar kind of locks into the catapult um and then they hit a button on the catapult, and it, it takes tension out, so it takes all the slack out of the system. A little hydraulic ram comes out and takes all the slack out, and uh, the jet kind of squats down a little bit. Um, and as soon as you feel that, you see out of the corner of your eye this, mm-hmm. this green shirt who was in charge of hooking you up to the catapult. Um, he sprints out from under the airplane. Um, and at that point, you're, kind of, you're on a loaded gun, right? Mm-hmm. So they give you the turn-up signal. You run the airplane up, you do all your, your pre-flight checks. You'll see in a lot of videos, it's a, it's a wipeout, so you'll move the controls through their full range of motion and verify that um, the hydraulics are good, the flight controls are moving, there's no binding. Check the engine instruments, and then when everything's good to go, you give a hand salute. Um, and that's kind of your last moment of control, is you, you salute, and at that point, you're going flying. The only option is if something goes wrong between your salute and the catapult firing, uh, you can key the radio and say, suspend, suspend, suspend. And hopefully, that radio transmission beats the guy to the button, uh, and they don't want you. But uh, there's a pretty good, sh- pretty good chance that once you salute, you're going flying. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so you've, you've just got the throttle up the middle, and mill, and the catapult fires. And the, the first feeling is a, you can actually feel that holdback fitting break. Um, well, in the older airplanes, it broke. and the Hornet, it just releases. But uh, you feel that break, and then the first motion is down as the airplane kind of squats down. Um, and then you just get slammed in the back of the seat. And um, your vision kind of tunnels a little bit. And uh, two and a half seconds of just incredible acceleration down the catapult. And then when the airplane hits the end of the cat stroke, you actually get slammed forward fairly violently the seat from the acceleration stopping. Mm. Um, and then once you feel that thud, uh, the first thing you do is you check your airspeed. Make sure you have good end speed. Uh, that's calculated before you go so you know what number you're looking for in the heads up display. Um and uh yeah, so you get slam forward in the seat, check the airspeed, make sure you're good, and then put in your clearing turn, raise the gear and uh and fly away. The it's it's a it's kind of a jarring transition 'cause you know, for the pilots in the room, going from groundborne to airborne is usually a very gradual process, right? You taxi out on the mm. runway, you run the power up and it's a nice smooth acceleration here. Whereas um, a catapult takeoff, you go from on the ground to flying in two and a half seconds. And it's, <laughs> yeah. it's kind well, of a jarring, you know, experience to go from those two um, states that rapidly. Conversely, mm-hmm. landing on the ship, that's also something that takes getting used to, is you go from flying to stopped and taxiing in two seconds. Um, yeah, and so just kind of, insane. Yeah, so just kind of comprehending... Uh what has just happened take takes a little experience before it uh, becomes normal.
2: Yeah, and then we got uh some more listener questions here. Uh TJ's photography asks, um, what aircraft has been a challenge to go up against uh in DACT typically if you if you could choose one?
3: Uh one that I would not want to fight. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah, sure. Uh the F-22. Yeah, yeah I've, I can I've got yeah, I've got I've gotten lucky enough to fight F-22's uh, three times, and I've gotten murdered every <laughs> single time, uh, that thing is a spaceship.:
1: <laughs> um, Can you go into a little bit more into why exactly it's so incredibly difficult to defeat? Um, I think we know the I, answer it, generally, uh, but I'd like to hear it from a pilot
3: uh, It just it does things that airplanes are not supposed to do. I mean you've seen it in the air shows, right? like when they <laughs> do the uh, the pedal turns, or when they get the airplane extremely slow uh, point it with the uh, thrust vectoring and then accelerate out. Um, Mm. It's, it's just unreal. I mean, you, you know, when you're, when you're learning to BFM and fight airplanes, you, you learn to make certain assumptions about aircraft turn performance and, and things like that. And the Raptor just doesn't adhere to any of those. Hmm. So, um, so the rules kind of go out the window. Um, So the F-22 is, is a challenge. Um, The F-15 is, is a challenge to fight. um, I mean, really it's, it's a tough question, right? Because every, every airplane that you've gotten to fight is going to be uh, a little bit different, um, mm. and going to have its own challenges. But, uh, but yeah, the F-15 and the F-22 are, are two, um, pretty challenging opponents.
1: Well, they are the two air superiority fighters. I think that probably is a good thing for our country. So for um, sure, uh, we have another user question, uh, uh, Chris Loaf uh, at Loafing Photo asks, I understand one of your hobbies is model building. Can you tell us a little about that? Maybe a little bit of back- background on uh, what exactly got you into it and um, why you still do it. I've seen some of your photos and stuff like that that you've posted of them, but get into model oh, yeah. building a little bit.
3: Um, yeah. So I, I just, I mean, as a kid growing up, you know, I was uh, always going to the hobby store and taking my, my lawn mowing allowance and going mm-hmm. to the model store and picking up a model. and um, Usually, it would be glued together that afternoon with fingerprints all over it to uh, fly around nice. the living room and then usually break it two days later um, and then buy a new one so that was kind of my uh go to but i i don't know i I've, I've always been a i guess just an aviation nut and um you know when you're a kid it's not always accessible to actually go to the airport and fly and so i I took up model building as a as a uh way to kind of keep the interest going and then uh I actually just recently got back into it um so it's a little bit of nostalgia going back to your childhood, a little bit, right? And then, uh, yeah, I also find it interesting of just uh, you kind of when you build a model of something, you sort of dive into that airplane while you're building a model of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so when you're building an F four U Corsair model, for example, you start diving into the history of the airplane, what the different versions were, when it served, uh, the stories of the people who flew it, what they thought of the airplane. You know, and I just I kind of find that enjoyable. Uh, to getting to sort of do these deep dives on different types of airplanes and, and learn about them and hear other people's experiences about them. And, um, and
1: yeah, and it's a good way to kind of relax and waste time. <laughs> Does it ever make you think about what it would have actually been like to take off and land on an aircraft carrier with one of those warbirds?
3: You know, so, um, that's actually a good question. And I have, I got a, a very rare opportunity. So, a good friend of mine owns a T-28B, uh, a Trojan. It's a 1950s uh, Navy trainer. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the B model was not carrier capable, but the C model was. And, uh, and I got to fly his T-28 a couple of times. Um, and so I've got the experience of flying the airplane. And then he introduced me to a good friend of his who had flown uh, CH-46's helicopters during the Vietnam War. But, uh, but his initial flight training in the Navy included a CQ in the T-28. Um, and it was interesting. So I, I sat down and we, we talked for a couple hours about his CQ experience. And it was funny because I was able to, having done CQ in a, in a modern jet and having flown the T-28, it was interesting to try and merge those two experiences together um, because it, it, it was just so different, right? So. Um, they came aboard at 80 knots uh, in the T-28 with the flaps down, with the speed breakout, with the canopy open. Um, And there was actually an LSO with paddles out on the flight deck instead of the light system that we use today. Um, And 80 knots in that airplane is slow. Like, they were coming in as slow as they possibly could, pulling the power back, dropping it onto the deck, catching one of the wires, and there were no catapults. So they would They would taxi the airplane out of the wires, go to full power, and and drive this Warbird off the front of the ship and just, you know, hope that there was enough airspeed going off the front end um, to fly away. And so uh, I I would love to do it, um, but it was kind of a rare opportunity to have experienced CQ in a modern jet and have flown an airplane that they used to CQ in. and hear firsthand the stories of what it was like. And so that was a, a
1: very cool experience. Well, that's pretty cool to think about. Uh, uh, that's a very interesting experience to hear about and and be able to connect those two things because just seeing, watching, you know, a modern plane take off versus what it looks like in older footage and so it's just crazy to think what those guys went through. And I mean, it's crazy to think what you guys deal with. Um, but I had one last question, it's a little bit near and dear to my heart. Um, mm-hmm. If you have a uh specific spot um that is low level that you most that you like flying the most would you mind sharing that with us a specific spot that you you know that really stands out to you um obviously we know we those of us that uh, know what you fly know that you practice quite a bit of, at low level but um I'm just curious if there's any spot uh that particularly stands out to you
3: Um so I think the uh the kind of I guess the ultimate low-level experience is up in uh, Washington. It's mm-hmm. the, the VR 1350 and 1355. Um, they call it the Million Dollar Route, and it's an old uh, A6 route, kind of going back to you know my desires to fly A6s. Um, mm-hmm. When they used to practice the low-level ingress uh, bombing routes up in Washington, uh, and it runs through the Cascades, uh, take off at the of Whidbey, and you run you run the routes at the Whidbey. Um, and that's probably the ultimate low level. Um it's a hike to get up there, but uh but yeah that's probably probably the best low level experience. Um we're lucky enough here in California to have the Sidewinder low level, um which is pretty good. It's a pretty good low level route and uh we get to being local we get to fly that much more often than the be routes and so that's a that's a pretty good one as well that goes around the uh the twenty five oh eight restricted
1: area. Anywhere in particular along that route that's just outstanding you know, not, that none of us will ever have the opportunity to see on the same level, something that stands out to you maybe in the Sierras or down in yeah, the
3: valley. Well, you know, the the probably the first part of that route, uh it points Alpha through Charlie on the low level. They go it goes through the uh the southern Sierra Nevada mountains. And uh that's that's usually pretty awesome. It's there's awesome terrain, um really you know wooded high mountains. Um it also gives you a a pretty good um, appreciation for the amount of power that the F-18 has because I do remember a lesson learned, and this goes back to you know, general aviation and density altitude and, mm-hmm. and having respect for it um, because I remember flying this route and uh, you've got the radar altitude to the HUD and you're at 200 feet and you're going, wow, your airplane's not really performing the same way I would expect it to at 200 feet, and then you flip the radar the altimeter to barometric and you realize, yeah, you're at 200 feet above the ground but you're at 10,000 feet uh, pressure altitude wow. and so it kind of gives you the the uh appreciation for the fact that density altitude is a real thing even in a in a tactical jet gotta have a respect for it but uh yes. but yeah that's probably my favorite part of the, of the low level is just raging through the Sierra Nevada mountains <laughs> awesome
2: can't beat that well Evan, thank you for joining us. That takes us to our to our time limit. really appreciate it you taking time out of your day to come chat with us for a little while
3: yeah, no worries guys, it was fun. thanks for having me.
2: Anytime,
3: awesome. Anytime. Man. All right. See you. Right.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this aviation conversation. We hope that our discussion of aviation brought a smile to your face. This was our first time hosting this event, and we look forward to doing it again in the future. We welcome any feedback to improve these future events. You can find Full Disc Aviation online at www.fulldiscaviation.com and Mudspike Aviation at www.mudspikeaviation.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.